Now, friends, we come to the 16th chapter of the Gospel of John, and again, I must say that this is a section that I feel entirely inadequate to deal with. And very frankly, we went over the last part of the 15th chapter last time entirely too hurriedly. Although this is a five-year program, we have to move along. If you really want to know the truth, I wish we had five years to spend in the gospel of John alone. This is one of the richest and most rewarding studies that we possibly could have. Now, you'll recall that the Lord Jesus in this upper room discourse in the 16th chapter we're coming to is actually the last chapter of his discourse as he speaks to his disciples. In the next chapter, he's speaking to the Father, but he's speaking in earshot of these men that they might hear him praying, and that you and I might hear him praying because he's our great intercessor today, and these are the things that he prays for. Now, in the 15th chapter, he's dealing with something that's quite remarkable. He says that those that are his own should love one another. And I want to say to you that it is a real rebuke to us, two things. One is that he had to command us to do this. This is one of the things that ought to come to us, not naturally, but supernaturally, to love one another. And the second thing is, he had to do it, I guess, because we are not nearly as attractive as we think we are. We sometimes feel like that we're very attractive, but we're not, even to one another. And you'll find that believers are continually finding fault one with another, criticizing and picking out the little weaknesses and the little peccadilloes that are in the person of another believer. And it's difficult to get believers to love one another. And that is the thing that he's talking about. Now he says that one of the reasons that believers should live in the world is because of the hostility of the world to believers in Christ. And that's what he talked about in the 15th chapter as he closed it. He mentioned the fact of who our friends are, and then he mentioned the fact who our enemies are. And these enemies are those that hate him, and we are today to identify ourselves with him. Now, he makes a very remarkable statement back in verse 22, which I passed over rather hurriedly. And will you notice what he says? And I must begin there today. He said, If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. Now, that's a remarkable statement. Christ said if he hadn't come, they wouldn't have any sin. What does he mean by that? That these were sinless people, and he came along, and it was pretty mean on his part to show to them that they were sinners? No, that's not it. The thing that he's saying is this. He said that until he came, that all they had were their own little sins, and they were bad enough. But compared with the immeasurable guilt of rejecting the Savior of the world and the Lord of glory, their personal sins, there is nothing. So that it was better that they had not even seen him or heard him. And I have made this statement often when I was pastor. 
I would say sometimes at the end of a message when we gave the invitation that if you are here today and reject Jesus Christ, I'm the worst enemy that you've ever had because you could never go into the presence of God and say you hadn't heard about the Savior. And it has compounded your guilt so that you could never say to him that you've never heard the gospel because you have heard the gospel. And very frankly, I think that there are not only degrees of rewards in heaven, but there are degrees of punishment in hell, by the way. And I think that the worst sinner is the one that would be classified right with Judas Iscariot, one who was in the presence of Christ, heard about Christ, and then turned his back upon him. So right now, those of you that have heard this broadcast and turn your back upon Jesus Christ, I'm not your friend. I've become your enemy because of the fact that I've told you about one that you couldn't go into God's presence and said you hadn't heard about him. And to reject him is the greatest sin of all, as we shall see in this chapter later on. This is the thing that is absolutely immeasurable to reject Jesus Christ. Or let me put it like this. I have often said this, and let me repeat this also, because I think it's rather important. There are people today that will argue about whether the nations are the pagans of the world who've never heard of Christ, or they're lost. And very frankly, my answer is yes, they're lost. They're lost because they're sinners, not because they rejected Christ. But wait a minute, and I make this statement. I would rather be a hottentot in the darkness of Africa never having heard of the gospel, than to be a sinner sitting in the pew of a Bible-believing church in this land of ours and turning your back on Jesus Christ. That is the worst sin that there is. Now, therefore, he talks about this awful sin of rejecting him. And this makes the worst class of sinners there are in the world. And did you know that some of them are in our churches today? And that makes it reprehensible beyond words. Now he's going to move into the 16th chapter, and he's going to say, These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. And let me read on. Verse 2, They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. Now, I'm going to break off the reading at verse 3, because this is a tremendous section that we're looking at right here, and it's connected with what he said about the hatred of the world. Now, it's quite interesting of what the Lord Jesus is saying here. He says, "...these things have I spoken unto you," that is, the things back here in the 15th chapter, "...that you should not be offended," that is, that you should not be scandalized. Now, it's been the characteristic of the founders of the religions of the world. They always attempt to present a glorious future for their organization and their religion. And they also tell those who will join up the wonderful benefits that they're going to have. That's the method of the world today. 
And they never tell you, however, about the hardships and the disadvantages and the privations that you'll have to suffer and the sacrifices that you'll have to make. They never mention those. They just tell about the others. But you notice how different our Lord is? Now, I know that back in the 14th chapter, he promised them a glorious thing for the future. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. But he made it very clear that if you're going to follow him down here, it means to forsake all. And he said that the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests. He didn't have where to lay his head. And then he talked about if you're going to follow him, you'll have to take up your cross. Not his cross, your cross. And follow him. And that if we suffer with him down here, we're going to reign with him here. You see, he was despised down here, friends. And not only despised, he was rejected. And he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he said that his followers are going to be in the world, but they're not going to be of the world. And that the world is going to hate them. That's the thing he's made very clear. And he says it's not going to be easy for you down here. And yet the professing church today has gone out into the world. And instead of taking the position of Christ, they boasted of the fact they're going to convert the world. And they, of course, haven't done it in 1,900 years. But to do it, they've always had to popularize religion. That is, they've had to make it something very attractive to the world. And you find right now there are all kinds of devices that are employed today. And they are used to attract the ungodly. I noticed that the music has had to come down to the level of the world. And they say, well, we have to do this to win the world. Who told you you're going to win the world, friends? May I say that right now, I'm not talking about liberal churches. They went off the track years ago, many of them before I even entered the ministry. But my friend, today it's fundamental churches that are going off the track. And you will find out that in many of our fundamental churches, you find enemies of the Word of God. I've noticed in fundamental churches today, they do not attack the Bible. No, they wouldn't dare do that. They attack the man, who is generally the minister, who is preaching the Word of God. And they attack him. That is their way of attacking the Word of God. And you'll generally find in our churches some leader an officer generally, or some prominent member of the church who has taken upon himself to try to run the church and try to run the pastor, which is dead wrong, by the way. He's to be the leader of the church. And as a result, you'll find those people are never there when the Word of God is taught. But yet they are attempting to throw their weight around and how the church is being hurt today. May I say to you, my friends, if you stand for the Word of God, you're going to have enemies, and they're going to make an attack upon you. You can be sure of that. And I want to say this to you very carefully. If in your neighborhood there is a good Bible-believing church, and you are driving past that church to go to some great big mausoleum that's not holding up the Word of God, I say, shame on you, because you need today to support 
those that are standing for the Word of God, because they're becoming few. I know of many ministers that have left the ministry. I heard of one recently that walked out of the pulpit and walked out into a second-hand car concern, and he's selling second-hand cars. And he says he'd rather deal with second-hand cars than second-hand Christians. May I say to you how tragic it is to see what's happening. And I know one church, it's not a large church, but there's one man in that church. He's a deacon. He's already destroyed three preachers. One man left broken in health. Another man got out of the ministry. And another man, young fellow, he got out in time and he wasn't hurt, but he sure learned a lesson. May I say to you today that the Word of God, if you stand for it, you'll find out that you're over on his side and the world won't love you. That's the thing that he's saying. Now, notice what he's saying here. He says, "...these things I've spoken unto you that ye should not be offended." And the word is stumbled. The word in the Greek is skandalizo, which means scandalize. In other words, he is warning them ahead of time. And he does that in order to strengthen them and let them know what's coming. And he loves them right on through to the very end. And he's letting them know that he'll be with them and he knows what they're going to go through. Now, he makes it also very clear that they would not be offended. And yet he said that very night that they would be offended back in Matthew. He says, you'll be offended. And what in the world did he mean by that? Well, he meant simply this. He knew what was going to happen, but he's warning them of that in order that these men might know what's coming. And in knowing what's coming, and yet he knows that they will fail. He knew that Simon Peter would deny him, told him he would, but he sustained him through it. Why did he tell him ahead of time? And yet he knew he was going to do it. It was, my friend, to establish human responsibility that men might know that they are responsible to God. Now he says they're going to put you out of the synagogues. And the time will come that whoever kills you will think that he's doing God's service. May I say to you that that means that they would be excommunicated. And in that day, it was a terrible thing. And today, there are a great many people that are reluctant to leave their crowd in a liberal church. Another group are reluctant to take a stand in a conservative church against a little clique, just afraid to stand for God in these days. Well, my friends, if you're standing for Christ, it's going to cost you something. And I'm very candid to say to you today, and I know this is not popular. I can say things lots more popular than this. But if you're standing for Christ, it'll cost you something. And if you're not about to stand for him, you don't want to pay the price. Then I would say to you right now, back off in a hurry, because it'll be coming to you before it's over. And so they're to be excommunicated, he says. Not only that. He says, "...and these things will they do unto you because they've not known the Father of me." Now, the reason for it is because they do not know the Father and they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see what he's doing? He's tracing this hatred of the world for him right down to its source. Why does the world today hate the Word of God? Why is it that the world hates a genuine believer? Well, it's because of the fact 
that they have not known the Father, and they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he says, But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. He's letting them know, you see, what is coming, and he's training them, as it were, for what is coming to them. The Lord always prepares us, friends, for whatever's coming to us. I've learned in my own experience and as a pastor watching others that that is his method. Now, will you notice what he says here? And I'll move on to verse 5. Now he says, But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? You remember that Simon Peter made this statement very candidly, Whither goest thou? But it was the question of a little child. What he's saying here is, None of you have asked this really intelligently or spiritually. None of you have really discerned what's going to take place. Now he says, But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Sorrow hath filled your heart. What he's trying to say to them is, they're letting this one thing that he said that he's going to leave them absolutely overwhelm them with sorrow. And friends, that is something that Christians need to avoid. There are so many Christians that let one experience embitter them, a disappointment in some individual. And there are many of them who let an experience in a church turn them from God. I know a man right today. He's a friend of mine. He won't darken the door of a church. He had an experience, and he just won't go back. And another person has lost a loved one, and they're constantly in mourning. God says, don't be overcome by sorrow like that. He's saying this, because I've said these things unto you, sorrow fills your heart. And he said, that's not the way that it should be. Nevertheless, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is expedient, that is, it's best that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now, the Lord Jesus said, it's best for me to leave, because he said, I'm going to send the Comforter to you. Now, why was it best for the Lord Jesus to leave? Now, I can suggest several reasons, and I'm sure you'll think of more. One of the reasons is this, was his purpose in coming to this world was to die. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, when that was accomplished, he went back to the Father because his mission had been accomplished. And that's the reason it's best for him to go back. Then there's another thing. When he came to this earth, he took upon himself our humanity. And one of the things is that God is omnipresent. But he limited himself by becoming a man. And that, my friend, means that when he was in Galilee, he could not be down in Bethany. And the sisters, you remember Mary and Martha, reminded him of that. If you'd been here, our brother would not have died. In other words, if the Lord Jesus was in the world today, he couldn't be here where I am and where you are at the same time. But you see, he says, I'll send the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, why, he'll be in all places. And the Holy Spirit's right with me here today. I know that. And I know he's with you today. 
And therefore, he says, that's best. Now, you may think of other reasons. Now, he says, I'm going to send the comforter, the paraclete, and he'll come to you. And when he's come, now he's going to perform several ministries. Our Lord mentions one of the ministries that he has to the world. Now, this is the business of the church and believers as far as the world is concerned. When he's come, he will reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, he'll reprove the world. And what does that mean? Well, he'll convict the world. The word in the Greek is elenko. I counted, I think, 23 times that occurs in the trial of Socrates as recorded by Plato. Years ago, when I was in college, I purposely just checked that out. And it's a legal term. When the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world, just as a prosecuting attorney brings in evidence. Now, what will he convict the world of? Well, we're told here he will convict the world. When he's come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. These are the three things that the Spirit of God will do in reference to the world in these days. And that, I take it, is his present ministry in the world. Now, there is another ministry which Paul mentions in Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, and that is that he restrains. He restrains evil in the world. In other words, it's the Spirit of God alone who can make a climate in which the Word of God can go out and reach the hearts and lives. Now, I personally believe that he not only will take the Word of God and use it as he, we trust, is using it right now, and will use it when the Word of God is given out on radio. But I believe it's the Spirit of God that keeps the radio open. He's restraining in the world. You remember the Lord Jesus said to the church in Philadelphia, I've set before you an open door. You have a little strength. We're pretty weak, if you want to know the truth. I was rather amused the other day. I was taking my family and some friends, and we were looking over a cult headquarters in this area, and they have quite a layout worth millions of dollars. And I said almost ironically, I said, you know, when you compare this operation to our little operation, ours is not much. It looks very insignificant. Our Lord said, you're weak, but I'll keep before you an open door. And I think that's one of the things the Spirit of God does. In reference to the world, when the Word of God is to go out, he'll keep these avenues open. We pray that he will. Then he'll open up new channels for us. And that's his work of restraining but he also now will reprove or convict the world. Now, he convicts the world of what? Well, three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. But what kind of sin? And what does he mean by righteousness, and what does he mean by judgment? Now, we're not left to our own devices here, but he explains, the Lord does, what he means of sin, because they believe not on me. Now, what is the greatest sin in all the world? Murder? No. I suppose if you'd pick out the greatest sinner in this age, in this century. We've had some rascals, haven't we, in this century? Every century's had rascals. We certainly haven't lacked for them. We've had quite a few of them. I'm sure that many folk would pick Hitler 
I sure would pick him. And I, Stalin was one. That was Karl Marx. And then there's been some of the gangsters and the heads of the mafia and some of the revolutionaries. I'm sure that a great many people would pick these out as being the great sinners, the great rascals of this age. Well, who is the greatest sinner that there is today? I want to say this to you very carefully, and will you listen to me? Did you know you could be the greatest sinner that's living today or has lived in this century? Somebody says, now, wait a minute here, preacher. You can't say that to me. I'm not. I'm no rascal. I'm a law-abiding citizen. But have you accepted Christ? Listen to him. Of sin, because they believe not on me. What is the one sin? Actually, it's not an unpardonable sin because it's a state. And that's the state of unbelief. God has no remedy for that because his remedy is to trust Christ. Now, if you do not trust him, then you're lost. And it's just as simple as that, just as important as that. And that is a decision that every man has to make of sin because they believe not on me. So the man today, whoever he is that's rejecting Jesus Christ, that man in God's sight is the greatest sinner. Now, we've already seen that before. Back in the 15th chapter, he said, "...if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin." And friends, when you have heard the gospel, well, believe me, you are responsible And if you don't make a decision for Christ, you've actually committed a sin in that state of unbelief that you're in. Of sin, because they believe not on me. And then of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Well, now, what does he mean by that? Of righteousness, because I go to the Father and ye see me no more. He was delivered for our offenses, and he was raised for our justification of our righteousness. So he says, of righteousness, because I go to the Father, and ye see me no more. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, not only when he died on the cross, he died a judgment death. He took my guilt, your guilt, and he was delivered for our offenses, but he was raised for our justification. That is, he was raised that you and I might not only have sins subtracted, but that we might have righteousness added. And that is something, by the way, that's very important, that righteousness is something that you and I need. Not only do we need down here to have our sins forgiven, but how are you going to stand in God's presence if all he did was die for you and that means that you have a pardon, then you are nothing in the world but a pardoned criminal in heaven. But you see, he's made over to us his righteousness. He was delivered for our offenses, raised for our justification. And then Paul makes it very clear that Christ is our righteousness. He's made unto us righteousness. And that is the righteousness of God today. That's the righteousness that... Paul spoke of, that I might be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness of God, which is by faith. And that means he not only subtracts your sin, he adds his righteousness. And if you have any standing 
today before God, it's in Christ, and he is your righteousness. You have as much right in heaven as he has, or you have no right there at all of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more. And then the third thing of judgment. Now, what does that mean? That judgment is coming someday? No. What he says, because the prince of this world is judge. In other words, the prince of this world, let's say, he's already been judged. And this is difficult for a great many believers to understand that you and I live in a judged world. You hear people say today, well, I'll take my chances. They act as if they're on trial. You are not on trial. God has already declared you a lost sinner, and he's already had judgment against you. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, you and I are living in a world that's already judged. It's already judged, and it's just like the man waiting in death row for execution. The only thing is, those waiting in death row probably will not go to the gas chamber or the electric chair today. But you see, God's no sob sister. God is no politician who's trying to run for office. He's already in office. He's the judge of all the earth. And therefore, man will come up before him for judgment. And that judgment is just to hand down at your guilty friends. This idea that when you come up before God, you're going to be able to plead your case and tell him how good you are and what a sweet little boy you were, a sweet little girl. My friend, your righteousness and my righteousness is filthy rags in his sight. And I want to tell you, when you and I stand there someday and all we've got is a bunch of filthy rags, we won't look very good. We'll be not only ashamed of ourselves, but we'll see how guilty we are. So that of judgment, because the prince of this world is judge. And you remember when Paul reasoned with old Felix, he reasoned with him concerning judgment to come, that he was living in a judge world, and that he wasn't on trial. He was already a lost sinner. That frightened that old ruler. And I tell you, a great many people don't like that today. They resent this a great deal. They don't like it. There are many things about God that the lost world hates. The lost man hates the fact that God, for instance, is omnipotent, and that this is his universe, and he's running it his way. God today is the one in charge. They don't like that. They don't like that God saves by grace, and that man is a lost sinner in his sight. Now, the Lord Jesus says in verse 12, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. And I think God takes all of us and brings us along in the knowledge of the Word of God. And friends, the knowledge of the Bible doesn't mean that we're worshiping a book where this is not bibliolatry we're talking about. When you know the Word of God and begin to grow in the knowledge of the Word of God, you begin to know God and to know Christ. And also, this training that he's been talking about of suffering in the world. Paul says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That is something that God's people are absolutely, they're stagnant. They've reached a stalemate. 
They're not growing in the knowledge of Christ, and you can apart from the Word of God. And he's saying to you and me today, I have yet many things to say unto you. We don't know it all. We need to grow in grace and in the knowledge of him. Now, how can we? Just reading the Bible is not the answer alone. How be it, listen to him, verse 13, when he, the Spirit of truth, Now, the Holy Spirit is the teacher. Notice what he'll do. When he has come, and the Spirit of God has come into the world, and among the things that he does is in the life of the believer, he is the Spirit of truth. And the second thing he'll do, he'll guide you into all truth. Why? Well, third thing, he will not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. That's the fourth thing, and fifth, and he'll show you things to come. The sixth thing, he'll glorify me. And the seventh thing, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. Now, these are steps that he'll take. When the Spirit of truth is come, he's going to guide us into all truth. He'll teach us the Word of God. Now, what are the tests? Well, one of the things is he'll not speak of himself. Now, let me say this, and I want to say it very carefully, and so will you hear it very thoughtfully, and it's this. When you hear today these meetings where they're constantly talking about the Holy Ghost here, Holy Ghost that, Holy Ghost something else, and they're constantly talking about that, I listened on the radio sometime, a man, he says, we're having a Holy Ghost revival, a Holy Ghost is working, a Holy Ghost is doing this. And you know, the minute that he said all those things, I knew that the Holy Ghost was not working. Why? Well, because the Lord Jesus made it very clear. He'll not speak of himself. And how do you know when he's working? He'll glorify me. He shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. My friend, when you're in a meeting or in a Bible study, and all of a sudden you get a glimpse of the Lord Jesus, and he becomes wonderful to you, and the Savior becomes very real and meaningful to you, that's the time the Holy Spirit was working, because he's hiding himself, and he's revealing Christ. That's the important thing. Now listen to verse 15. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I that he shall take of mine, and he'll show it unto you. In other words, the Lord Jesus again is making himself equal with God. All things that the Father hath are mine. What the Father is, what he has, they're mine. And he'll take of mine. And that means he'll take the things of God and show them unto you. And he alone can do that. Paul says, I hath not seen, neither ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. You see, the Spirit is the one that searcheth all things, even the deep things of God. And he alone can show these things to us. Now we come to a very interesting section here. In verse 16, he says, A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, 
because I go to the Father. Now, what did he mean? Well, he meant this. He would be arrested. They'd be scattered like sheep. He'd be separated from them. He would be crucified, be buried. But the third day, he would come back, and in a little while, they would see him. He'd be absent a little while. They wouldn't see him. Then they would see him. Now, that has a fuller, richer, deeper meaning for us today. Now, verse 18, "...they said, therefore, what is this that he saith a little while?" We cannot tell what he saith. They did not know exactly what he meant. Now, Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, and said unto them, "...do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me?" Verily I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Now, this is the picture, and this is always the steps. The little while was for them the three days. But there's to come another little while. He ascended back into heaven. And he says, I'll not leave you comfortless. I'm coming unto you in the person of the Holy Spirit. I'll not leave you orphans. I'll be with you through the Spirit of God. And he'll take the things of mine and make them real to you. That's where you and I live today. The little while has been 1,900 years. But during those 1,900 years, multitudes have come to him. And they've come to know him. The Spirit of God's made him real to them. And they're looking forward. And they've gone through sorrow. They've known what it is to be hated, to be ridiculed, to be maligned in this world. And that's his method. He brings us through that. And joy is coming. Our sorrow shall be turned into joy. And I do not know who you are, where you are, but right now, wherever you are, friends, if you're his child and you're in sorrow and there are tears in your eyes, You've got a broken heart. Joy cometh in the morning. He's going to bring joy into your life. What a prospect. And the figure of speech he uses is this. A woman, when she's in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she's delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And I think one of the things that when we get in his presence someday that we're going to look back on this life, and if we have any regrets, the regrets are going to be, my, why didn't we do more for him? Why didn't we suffer more for him? Why didn't we stand for him? That's going to be our regret. Now, notice what he says here, "...and ye now therefore have sorrow, but I'll see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you." That's the day that's coming. And now he says this, and in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. This again, this is the third time, praying in the name of Christ. What does it mean? We've already seen it means to abide in him. It means to obey him. My friends, this idea today, you can just run in and tag on in Jesus' name, and he's going to give you exactly what you asked for. That's not what he's talking about. Now, will you notice, he says here, "...hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name, ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy 
may be full. Now, they had never prayed to the Father in Jesus' name. And you and I today are to pray to God the Father in Jesus' name. Now, somebody says, just can't you pray to Jesus? Yes, I think you can if you want to. But why do you rob yourself of an intercessor? He's up there for you. Pray to the Father in the name of Jesus, because he's up there praying for you. That's the reason that we should pray this way. Now he says, And at that day ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I'll pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. God wants to hear an answer prayer, but my friends, it has to come from the heart of one who loves Christ, is in fellowship with Christ, and who's obeying Christ. You trying to cash somebody else's check that wasn't made to you. Now, it's generally conceded that the key to the gospel of John is John 20, 30, 31. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Now, I concur that that is the key to this gospel, but I'd like to put right along by the side of it verse 28, because it gives this tremendous movement of the Son of God and the fact that God became a man and the Word was made flesh. Listen to it. I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. And that's a statement. There's never been a human being on this earth that could make that statement except the Lord Jesus Christ. And this gospel widens it out and makes this bigger than Bethlehem. And it reaches back into eternity past and moves into eternity in the future. And it just speaks of those few moments he spent on this little earth. Now, verse 29, his disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. And this ought to be very plain, by the way, for the church today, to understand that the Lord Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. He makes that tremendous claim here in verse 28. And in verse 30, he says, Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. You need not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. You see, these men now are being brought into the place not only of just faith, but of knowledge that is based upon facts, and that now they are convinced. There's a great conviction that's coming over them. Jesus answered them, Do ye now believe? Now listen, though. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own. And that hour came. These very men that one of them said he had laid down his life for him. And I think all ten of the others would have said that also. But they didn't. They were scattered. 
And he says, you'll leave me alone, and yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. And that's one of the great mysteries. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's a great truth, but it's also true that when he's on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's a quotation from the 22nd Psalm, and the explanation given is, because thou art holy. When he was made sin for us, friends, there was a rent in the Godhead as well as a rent in the veil. But God was in all of this reconciling the world to himself. Now, here is a great statement that he makes. This is an axiom of the Christian life. It's the last thing that he said unto them. Listen to it. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, you'll notice here that this verse makes it very clear that the child of God can have peace in this life. And that peace is only found in Christ. The child of God can find peace in no other place. And friends, we just well say it very plainly. You're not going to find peace today, even in Christian service. And you're not going to find peace in a church. You're not going to find peace in teaching a Sunday school class or being active. You're not going to find peace today except in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's so important for God's child to see in this day. He says, These things I've spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. Now notice, in the world ye shall have tribulation or trouble. Now friends, the only thing you can ever find in this world is trouble. Our Lord made that very clear. This world is the place of trouble, and a great many believers go out into the world, then they wonder why they're in trouble. Well, friends, that's where you went, where the trouble is. It's in the world. But now listen to him. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, his victory is our victory. Well, I hear so much about the victorious life. The only one who ever lived a victorious life was Christ. And you and I can't live it. We can let him live it in us. That's all. And when you and I learn to identify ourselves with him and come into close fellowship with him and make real these things that are theories to the average Christian, then you and I are going to begin to experience the peace of God in our hearts. And we're also going to be a good share. That means there'll be joy in our lives. These are the two things that are very important today. Peace and joy. And what is it you find in the world? Trouble. Now, that brings us to the 17th chapter, and it opens, These words spake Jesus. Well, what words? Well, John 13, 14, 15, and 16. Actually, he ceases speaking to them, and he now speaks to the Father. 
And that's important for us to see. For this reason, although he's speaking to the Father in this chapter, that is chapter 17, he's speaking to the Father for their benefit and for our benefit because he today is our great intercessor. And you wonder what he's been praying for. Well, here is the Lord's prayer. This is the prayer that he prayed. Now, the one back in the Sermon on the Mount, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and etc., etc., that prayer is not the Lord's prayer. You see, that prayer he could not pray. He couldn't say, Our Father, because he is related to God in a different way than you and I are. He is because of his position in the Trinity, and we, by the new birth, by trusting him. And then he could never have said, forgive us our trespasses or our debts or our sins, however you want to translate it, all adds up to the same thing. And he just never had any. Therefore, he couldn't pray that prayer. And by the same token, you and I can't pray this prayer that's in John 17. This is his prayer. Maybe you've heard that whimsical story about the two men that were arguing about how much they knew about the Bible. One man said to the other, I bet you don't even know what the Lord's Prayer is. And the other fellow said, I bet I do. And these fellows bet about it, you know, and which reveal they didn't know very much about the Bible, either one of them. And so the other said, All right, now let's hear you say it. And so he started in. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And the other fellow said, well, you fool me. I didn't think you'd know it. Well, may I say to you, if he had said, Our Father, which art in heaven, he would not have given the Lord's Prayer. And yet that's the way that prayer is classified. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. And truly, we've come to one of the most remarkable chapters in the Bible, and it is the longest prayer in the Bible. It'll take you only three minutes, though, to read it. And no prayer, I think, ought to go over three minutes. If you can't say all you've got to say in three minutes, why, my friend, you've got too much to say. And I'll be very frank with you. I think brief prayers thought out right to the point are much more effective than this rambling business that we have today. No wonder Prayer meetings are as dead as a dodo bird. Now, I want you to notice what others have said about this chapter, because I think I've said that every chapter we've come to is the greatest chapter here in this great upper room discourse. Well, it's like going up a staircase. Each one brings you higher. Or climbing a mountain, you get higher and higher. And certainly John 17 is the top. Matthew Henry made this statement concerning John 17. He says it's the most remarkable prayer followed the most full and consoling discourse ever uttered on earth. And not only did he have that to say, but Martin Luther said this, and I'd like to give you this quotation from him. He says, "...this is truly beyond measure." a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart, both in reference to us 
and to his father, and he pours them all out. It sounds so honest, so simple. It is so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom it. And then Melanchthon, who was another one of the reformers, made this statement. He says, "...there is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son to God himself." And that ends the quotation. This is the prayer, by the way, that it is said that John Knox read. I think that he read this, I forget how many times in his lifetime. And when he was on his deathbed, his wife asked him, "'Where do you want me to read?' And he said, "'Read where I first put my anchor down.'" And that was in the 17th of John's Gospel. And Bousset read this 60 times, and I believe that that was a week. Spiner read it three times. And Dr. Fisher, who was Bishop of Rochester under Henry VIII, this is the prayer, the last prayer, or the last portion of Scripture that he read before his martyrdom. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer, and it opens, These words spake Jesus. This, my friend, is a great portion of Scripture that we've come to. And again, may I say it without any attempt of appearing to be, well, shall I say, adopt a pious attitude. I feel wholly and totally inadequate to deal with this prayer. It's his high priestly intercession for us. And it's a specimen that's given to us of the communications which I think constantly pass between the Lord Jesus here on earth and the Father in heaven. His life was a life of prayer, you will recall, when he began his ministry over in the first chapter of Mark on that first Sabbath day. It says he rose up a great while before day, and went out and departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. And then Luke tells us in the sixth chapter, verse 12, that he went up into a mountain to pray, continued all night in prayer to God. And again and again, it tells about our Lord being in prayer. Now, he today is our great intercessor, and the question may be asked, well, who's he praying for? And what's he praying about? Let me say this, that he's praying for you, and he's praying for me. And if you forgot to pray this morning, he didn't. He prayed for you this morning. And God always hears and answers his prayer just the way he prays it. Now, he answers my prayer, but not the way I pray it always. You remember he said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. That's in John 11, 41 and 42. Now, will you notice? These words spake Jesus, and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. 
Now, we come into this chapter, that's verse 1 of chapter 17, and what we have here is a division, and I feel like it's almost uh, sacrilegious to divide this prayer, uh, attempt to make it a sort of a theological production, and yet I think it's that. I've divided it like this. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. And in verses 6 to 20, he prays for his own. In this particular case, it was his disciples, and today it's believers. It's you and I. And then we find in verses 21 to 26, Jesus prays for his church. Now, Jesus prays for himself. And I want you to notice that this is not out of line, and it's not even a mark of selfishness. I believe that when you and I go to God in prayer, we need to get our own hearts and lives right with God. We need to get in tune, as it were, with heaven. And every instrument should be tuned up before it plays the tune. And before you and I begin to pray for others, we need to pray for ourselves. And that's not selfishness. That is something that is essential, by the way. Now, will you notice what it says? "...and he lifted up his eyes to heaven." I have never argued for a posture of the body. But he prayed this prayer when he was walking along, apparently, or standing. And it says he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And today, what do we say in church? I've said it a thousand times, I guess. Let's bow our heads in prayer. He didn't. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. And you remember David in the 25th Psalm, the first verse, put it like this, "'Under thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul.'" And again in Psalm 123, 1, it says, "'Under thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens.'" And then in that very marvelous pilgrim Psalm 121, in that it says this, I will lift up mine eyes into the hills. That ought to be a question. The heathen were lifting up their eyes to the hills. And shall I lift up mine eyes to the hills? And then the question again, From whence cometh my help? Well, not from the hills. My help cometh from the Lord that made heaven and earth. And the thought here is that David is saying, I'll lift up mine eyes to heaven. And very frankly, friends, I'm not wanting to change the ritual of the church today, but I think that it would be more in keeping with what prayer really is, instead of bowing our heads and looking down at our shoes, seeing whether we shine them or not, our feet, and instead of looking down, we ought to look up to the heavens when we pray. And our Lord, I think, prayed this prayer, walking along with his eyes open, and it says he lifted up his eyes to heaven which means he had his eyes open. So don't tell me that you can't pray without bowing your head and closing your eyes. Why, you can pray walking along. Our Lord did that. And this is rather revolutionary today, and I'm not about to try to change the church. I'm no longer a pastor, so I'm going to let the other brethren run the churches today, and I'll just stay out. But here it is. This is the way he did it. And if you want to follow our Lord in a posture in prayer, I'm sure it would be like this. Now, notice the prayer that he prays. He says, Father, the hour has come. Now, I wish that I 
had time to spend with that little expression right there. The hour is come. What hour? Well, the hour that was set way back yonder in eternity. And already the clock now is striking that hour that was set way back in eternity. Because before the foundation of the world, he was the Lamb of God slain. It was arranged way back there. The hour has come. When he began his ministry, his mother, you'll remember, at that wedding in Cana of Galilee, said to him, They have no wine. He says, Woman, what's that to thee and to me? Mine hour is not yet come. And there on the cross, his hour came. And you remember, he looked down at his mother. And when he looked down at her, you remember, he said, Woman, behold thy son. His hour has come. And what is that hour? The hour when he paid for your sins and mine. The hour when all of the creation of God, friends, saw the love of God displayed and lavished yonder upon that cross when he took your sins and my sins and he died a vicarious, substitutionary, redemptive death for you and for me. And it didn't end there. It goes on to the resurrection. The hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Now, glorify thy Son. What? Well, the death of Christ would demonstrate that God's not the brutal bully that the liberalists talked about in the Old Testament but he is a father, and that he's loved the world, that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And now the son will be raised from the dead, ascend back to heaven, and he's been given a name that's above every name, and every knee shall bow to him. Glorify thy son, that thy son may glorify thee. Now he says, "...as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him." Now, this is a startling statement, by the way. He has power over all flesh. And God today, in fact, the Lord Jesus, could make this little universe that you and I live in, and each individual in it, bow to him. He could bring them all into subjection to him and make robots out of all of us and a bunch of zombies. But that's the last thing he wants. And he has power over all flesh. But you see, the church is God's love gift to Christ. And this love gift of God to Christ is the church. And so we have here that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And then that brings up this question here of election. And I'm not going into it at all. I know that there are great many today that have very strong views on it. Some of them would be hyper-Calvinistic, and others would have low-Arminian views. I think that somewhere between is the normal position and I must confess that I'm somewhere between. I am a Calvinist, as you've certainly discovered. But I always like what Spurgeon said to the man who knew that Calvin believed in election. 
and that he was Calvinistic in his theology. And he came to Mr. Spurgeon and said, "'If I believed like you do, I wouldn't preach like you do.'" And as you know, Spurgeon preached a whosoever will gospel. And Spurgeon gave this rather unique answer. He said, "'If the Lord had put a yellow streak up and down the backs of the elect, he says, I wouldn't preach. I'd just go up and down the street lifting up shirt tails and finding out who had the yellow streak up and down their backs, and I'd give the gospel to them. I like that, because if God told me who the elect were and let me in on the inside, that's what I'd do. But again, to me, it's whosoever will may come. And when God said that, that's a legitimate offer to every person. If you are listening right now, you haven't any excuse at all other than this one excuse, you will not come to him. That'll be your condemnation is that you turn down the offer that he's made to you. Now, he says here that he's given the eternal life to those that have heard the call, and not only heard the call, those that have responded down in their hearts and have come to Christ of their own free will. And that's the way I understand this to mean here. Now he says, "...this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent." Now, here is another very important statement he makes here. What is life eternal? It's to know thee, the only true God. It's not the amount of knowledge that you have. It's the kind of knowledge that you have. It's who you know. That's important. That's important in this world, isn't it? It's who you know. And it's whether you know Christ. And it's the same way. It's not the amount of faith that you have. It's the kind of faith. And it's not the faith that saves. And again, if I may quote Spurgeon, it's not thy joy in Christ that saves thee, it's Christ. It is not thy faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merit. That's what saves. It's the object of faith, because you can believe in the wrong thing. But you see, what he's saying here is this. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God. Now, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And what does the Word of God say? That the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, buried and rose again. Now, these are facts, and our knowledge of that and our response to that knowledge is faith when we trust Christ as Savior. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Now he says here, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now, the Lord Jesus in this section here hands in his final report to the Father. He says, I finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Well, he hasn't yet died on the cross. He hasn't yet risen from the dead. But you see, as far as he's concerned, 
God speaks of things that are not just as if they are. And God speaks of that which is going to come just as if it has come. And as far as he's concerned, it has. In other words, future tense for God is just as accurate as past tense. And our Lord is handing in now his final report. He says, I finished the work which thou gavest me to do. But yonder on the cross, he said, it is finished to tell us thy. It is finished. He turned in then his final report or made the statement that it was finished. And that means your redemption is finished and mine. And if it's finished, then you can put a period and you and I can't add anything to it. He's already done all that is essential. Therefore, the gospel and salvation is not what God is asking you to do. It's God telling you what he's already done for you. And it's your response to that that will save you. Now, will you notice verse 5? And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now, in the epistle to the Philippians, it speaks of the fact that he emptied himself. And, of course, those who deny the deity of Christ have seized upon that statement in the second chapter, and they said he emptied himself of his deity. Well, he did not. John makes it very clear in this gospel. The Word became flesh. And that little baby reclining on Mary's bosom is God. And he could have spoken this universe out of existence. He wasn't 99 and 44, 100% God. He is 100% God. And so what did he emptied himself of? Well, I think he emptied himself of his prerogatives of deity. I think he laid aside his glory. We make a great deal at Christmas time of the fact the shepherds came and the angels were there and a few wise men turned up a few months later. Well, friends, that's not the way it should have been. He's the Lord of glory. All of creation should have been there. Every human being on top of the earth should have been there for that event. Back, you'll recall, when General de Gaulle was buried at his funeral, Frenchmen came from all over France. Well, he was a great Frenchman, and the French people honored him. Well, when the Lord of glory is born in this earth, the whole world should have been there. But they weren't there. What happened? He could have claimed it, but he laid aside his glory. Now, when he's ready to return to heaven, he says, Glorify thou me with the glory that I had with thee before the foundation of the world. Now he's handed in his report. He's now prayed for himself. Now he prays for his disciples. Will you listen to this? And we have another reference in this next verse, in fact, too, to this great doctrine of election. Now, you can reject it if you want to, but it's in the Word of God. And our Lord, certainly when he talked to the Father, talked to him about it. But I take it, since he and the Father are the ones who talk it over, and he wants me to listen to it. No, I think this is sort of a private conversation, and maybe I don't know as much about election as maybe I should know. And the very interesting thing is, I've read Hodge, I've read Calvin, 
I've read Thorn. Well, I've read Shedd. I've read Strong. I've read the great theologians. And you want to know something? I don't mind saying I don't know anything about it because they don't seem to know much more than I know about the doctrine of election. I think it's a great truth, but I don't know anything about it because that's God's side. And there are a lot of things God knows that I don't know. And maybe you didn't know that before yourself, but there's a great deal God knows that we don't know today. Now, he says, "...I have manifested thy name unto the man which thou gavest me out of the world." That's the way he talks to the Father about us. "...and thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word." And so you see that here, this is mystical. I can't fathom its meaning. It's the relationship between Christ and his own here. What a wonderful relationship. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. Listen to him again. He's going to come back to this again. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them. Again, the ones which thou gavest me. And they've known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Now, you see, they've made tremendous advances since they've been with him for three years. We think sometimes they were totally ignorant of him. At this time, I think they had a good conception of his person, but they had a very wrong conception of his purpose and certainly of his death and resurrection. But I do believe that they have come a long ways in the understanding of him. They know that he's come from God, and they believe God has sent him. Now, notice what he says in verse 9, "...I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine." Now, I want to make a startling statement here, but it's not any more startling than what he says. Jesus today does not pray for the world. Now, remember, this is a special prayer. I do not believe that Christ today is praying for the world. His ministry of intercession is for his own that's in the world. And he says here very clearly, I pray for them, I pray not for the world. Now, I think we can understand that, friends. He says he doesn't pray for the world. Now, somebody says, I think it's terrible he doesn't pray for the world. My friend, he died for the world. What else do you want to ask him? It's the Holy Spirit in the world today. That's his ministry, to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. But he does not pray for the world. He says, I pray for them which thou hast given me. Oops, here we go again. Those that thou hast given me, for they are thine. Now, friends, you can dodge election all you want to, but here it is. There are certain things that I've learned that I have to believe that to me are paradoxical. They may not be contradictory, but they certainly are paradoxical. And certainly election and free will happen to be one of those. Now, the reason I'm not going into this is I'm not teaching theology. I'm teaching John 17. And the other thing is that I don't think that I know enough to teach about it. Now, the year I graduated from seminary, I wish you could have met me then. I was really a smart boy then. I had all the answers. But I don't know what happened. 
I don't have them today. And I had the answer to election and free will, but somewhere along the way, I, in fact, I'd tell you about it if I could remember what it was, but I forget what the answer was. So you'll forgive me, will you not, if I pass by this again? Verse 10 now. And he says, And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And that is the whole purpose of you and of me being saved, is to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11, And now I'm no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. And here you have this profound statement again. He says here, that they may be one as we are. Now, here is the great high priestly prayer of Christ, and it's for the present hour. It's for you. He prays for the unity of believers, and he's not praying for the ecumenical movement. He's not praying that they all join the same organization. He says that they may be one as we are, and that is an organic unity that only God can make. And to begin with, he's not praying, well, I'll come to that just in a few moments. Now, will you listen to him? While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those thou gavest me I've kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world." that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. You see, the word of God is what causes the problem in the world today. I'm teaching out of the most revolutionary book there is in the world, the Bible. And somebody says, my, that bunch of radicals and revolutionaries that are around us today. I happen to be one of them. I'm preaching the most revolutionary thing in the world, friends, is that you can't save yourself, only Christ can save you, and that you can't make this world better, and no man can make it better with Jesus Christ. That's revolutionary. And the world doesn't like that today because they want to plant a few flowers and work on ecology and clean up pollution. But all they're doing is just polluting it a little bit more. Man is responsible for pollution, and the pollution is in the human heart of man. Now, that's revolutionary. That's not what you hear on TV today or read in magazines, how important this is. Now, listen to him. Verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil one, is the accurate reading. Now, friends, this is important to see. We make a great deal of the soon coming of Christ and looking for that blessed hope and praying for it. I want to tell you something else. He says, I'm not praying that they be taken out of the world. You know, he doesn't pray for that. Isn't that amazing? He says, I pray that you keep them in the world. God gets more glory by keeping you and me in the world today than he would in taking us out of the world today. Now, we think the rapture is going to really be something, and it is, my friend. But let's understand one thing. God will get more glory by keeping you and me in the world. And if you knew Vernon McGee like he knows Vernon McGee, that's quite a miracle to keep me in the world.
My, I want to tell you, God will get glory in that. Now, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And now he says, sanctify them through thy truth. And what does God use today to sanctify believers? Thy word is truth. The Word of God is God's sanctifying power today. I wish I could go into that. As you well know, that's my hang-up, the Word of God. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. We are sending the world to bear witness, friends. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. He identifies himself with us, friends. And we ought to be identified with him in this world today. Now, listen to him. He says here something else. He's praying now for the church, especially for you and me. Listen to him. Verse 21, "...that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. You want to know why I do not believe in the ecumenical movement? Very briefly, it's this. I've heard it said in church court after church court, oh, let's all get together and answer the prayer of Christ. When did he ever pray to you and me to get together? He never did that. May I say to you, this is a unity that only he can make. It's the unity that the Holy Spirit makes when he puts you in the body of believers, and that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that puts you and me in the body of believers. Now, friends, you can't make that unity. And a national council of churches and a world council of churches just can't make that unity. Only Christ can make that unity. And the very group today that talk about unity and the ecumenical movement are the very ones who've divided the church. The church is made up of those that are in the body of believers, and they can only be joined together in the person of Jesus Christ. He didn't pray this prayer to us. And friends, let's understand, he says that God always hears his prayer. You want to know something? All believers are one in Christ. His prayer has been answered. You don't have to belong to the same organization I belong to, because I don't belong to any. May I say to you, the important thing is to be joined to the living Christ today. And that's the thing that is so vital. Now he says here, I in them and thou in me. And this is a wonderful thing. Only the Spirit of God can do that. And he says, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. You know, God loves us today just like he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. How wonderful that is. Verse 25, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee. And that's an accurate statement, friends. The world doesn't know God. But I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And he embraces here his entire mission of redemption. Anyone who's a believer knows God sent Christ into the world to die for our sins. And he says, And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. And friends, we need to pray that that love be in our hearts. This is the Lord's Prayer. 